Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Taylor, and today we're going to explore a topic that, without fail, is one of the most requested topics each time I teach an abnormal psychology course. And I always get requests to talk about multiple personality disorder, which is now known by dissociative identity disorder in the DSM-5. And I wanted to start out with the case of a woman who's gone missing three times, and she's still missing today. And this is the case of Hannah Up. The first time that Hannah went missing, she was 23 years old. On September 16th, which is my birthday, by the way, September 16th of 2008, she was found floating face down in a harbor in New York City. Luckily, she was spotted and rescued by a ferryboat captain, but she was suffering from severe dehydration and hypothermia. And she had been missing for almost three weeks. Hannah said that the last thing she remembered was going for a jog in August. She had no memory of the prior three weeks and had no idea how she ended up face down in the harbor. So fast forward five years later in 2013, also in September, coincidentally, or maybe not, I don't know, Hannah was teaching at a school in Maryland, and she went missing for two days this time and was found in a creek with a shopping cart next to her. Again, she really didn't know how she winded up in the situation and didn't have much of a memory for the previous two days. Then, four years later in 2017, and again in September, Hannah was teaching on the island of St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands when Hurricane Irma hit and devastated the island. And she survived Irma, but then went missing just as Hurricane Maria set its sights on St. Thomas. And she never returned home. And her friends found her clothes neatly folded on a nearby bench with her car keys next to them. And she hasn't been seen since. So that was three years ago. So Hannah Up is thought to have had recurrent dissociative fugues. And dissociative fugue is a subdiagnosis of dissociative amnesia in the DSM-5. And it's part of the family of dissociative disorders, which also includes dissociative identity disorder and depersonalization slash derealization disorder. And all of these disorders have dissociation in common. That's why they're called dissociative disorders. Dissociation is a detachment from physical or emotional consciousness, identity, or memory. However, it's not, it's not a full break with reality, which we would consider psychosis and not dissociation. And a lot of people experiencing dissociation will describe the experience as sort of fuzzy or blurry or, or dreamlike. And we call this, sort, uh, this type of dissociation, we call it derealization. The world doesn't seem real. It seems like a movie or a dream. Everything might seem foggy. Also, many people describe dissociation as like a sort of out-of-body experience. We call that type of dissociation depersonalization. With depersonalization, you don't feel like you're connected to your body. So that's derealization and depersonalization. And with Hannah Up, many mental health experts believe she was experiencing a dissociative fugue. You might have heard of the term fugue before from music especially classical music. It's a type of musical composition. And etymologically, it comes from the Latin for to flee, uh, not the, the, the bug flee, but F-L-E-E, which is what many people do when they are experiencing a dissociative fugue. A dissociative fugue is a temporary state where you're confused, you have some memory loss, and you may even forget your identity. And oftentimes people with dissociative fugue are found wandering around, sometimes even in different countries or on different continents, and they have no idea of how they got there. 
Uh, Jason Bourne from the Bourne Identity series is portrayed as having dissociative fugue. Though whether it was caused by physical stress or psychological stress, I'm not really sure. I'm not super up on my Bourne series uh, movies and novels. So dissociative fugue is technically a specifier for the diagnosis of dissociative amnesia in the DSM-5. And dissociative amnesia is not organic amnesia. It's not obviously physically caused. It's not losing memory due to being hit in the head with something or losing memory to being blackout drunk. It's not due to substance use or to traumatic brain injury. And it's also not memory loss due to a neurocognitive disorder that involves dementia like Alzheimer's. Uh, organic amnesia is an interesting psychological topic, though. And we usually divide organic amnesia into two types. Uh, retrograde amnesia, which is what we traditionally think of when we think about amnesia, uh, it's loss of memory and information before the onset of amnesia. Retrograde amnesia is the loss of being able to recall past memories. And the other type is anterograde amnesia. And anterograde amnesia is a loss of being able to recall information that occurred after the onset of amnesia. Anterograde is struggling to lay down or to retrieve new memories. So let's say it's election day, November 3rd, 2020, and I'm on my way to vote. And I get into a car accident. And after the car accident, I can't remember what I had for breakfast that morning. That's retrograde amnesia. And let's say I still ended up going to vote after the car accident. And I cast my vote, and then I come home, and my wife, Lauren, asks, who'd you vote for? And I can't remember. This happened after the accident, so it's anterograde amnesia. Uh, with retrograde amnesia, we have what we call Ribot's Law. And it's sort of spelled like ribot. It's R-I-B-O-T. Uh, and we're trying to teach Emerson uh, what, a so uh, like a, what sound a frog makes, ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. Anyways, but it's named after a French psychologist, so the final T's silent. Anyways, Rubeau's Law says that we're more likely to lose information right around the trauma than from the distant past. We're more likely to forget what we had for breakfast the morning of a car accident than we are to forget where we attended high school, for instance. Uh, and I actually have heard that anterograde amnesia is actually more common than retrograde amnesia. Um, anyways, now, generalized amnesia, where you forget your identity and important identifying information, is extremely rare, despite what movies and soap operas would have you believe. This is a really interesting case and a sad case of generalized amnesia, and it's with a person called Benjamin Kyle. And I say called Benjamin Kyle and not named Benjamin Kyle because we didn't really know his real name. Uh, he was found in a Burger King parking lot in the state of Georgia with no idea who he was or how he got there. And so since it was found at Burger King, he was assigned a name that had the initials BK in it, so Benjamin Kyle. And for over 10 years, he had no idea who he was. Uh, he also couldn't apply for jobs or work because he didn't have a social security number or didn't remember his social security number. And luckily, in 2015, with DNA, he was able to identify or find his identity and was able to find some of his close relatives. And with Benjamin Kyle, it's definitely generalized amnesia because he forgot his identity. But whether it was organic amnesia, like he was found with blunt force trauma in the Burger King parking lot, or whether it was dissociative amnesia, which is psychologically caused, is unknown. Uh, so I mentioned physical trauma, and we think that many dissociative disorders are a result of trauma. Uh, you, a response to psychological trauma for dissociative disorders, rather than to physical trauma like with organic amnesia. And victims of abuse seem to be at much higher risk of dissociative disorders. I've seen that like 90% of diagnoses of dissociative disorders um, have some sort of trauma history. 
And in fact, there are some theories that I've seen that uh, say that dissociative disorders are really just a subset of PTSD. Um, all right, let's talk about the highly requested multiple personality disorder. And the name multiple personality disorder is actually a vestige from previous DSMs. Uh, with the DSM-5, it became known as dissociative identity disorder, which we abbreviate as DID. And I'm sort of glad that we're talking about this during October with Halloween and everything, as it seems like there's a lot of scary movies that deal with dissociative identity disorder. Uh, my favorite is a 2003 movie called Identity, uh, and it has John Cusack in it. And more recently, we have Split by M. Night Shyamalan, uh, which I am ashamed to admit I haven't seen. And then if we want to go super old school, we have the novel of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson from the late 1800s. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is actually based off a real-life person named Deacon Brody. And Deacon Brody lived in Edinburgh, Scotland, and was a religious deacon by day and a thief by night. And when I was in Edinburgh two summers ago, I saw Deacon Brody's pub on the Royal Mile there. And I'm a sucker for a good pub. Um, I used to think, I think it used to be his house or something. Uh, but anyways, I remember the sign uh, to the pub had like a picture of an upstanding gentleman on one side. And then on the other side had a picture of a thief. So dissociative identity disorder makes for good movies and for good literature, but is it real? And this is a controversial question in psychology. As many psychologists are skeptical as to whether this disorder is real, or if it is real, most psychologists are going to say it's blown out of proportion and is incredibly rare. So dissociative identity disorder, or it was called multiple personality disorder, became a popular subject in the 1970s when Flora Retta Schreiber published the book Sybil. Uh, and it was Sybil, the true story of a woman possessed by 16 different personalities. And Sybil was actually a pseudonym, a fake name. Uh, the full pseudonym in the novel was Sybil Isabel Dorset, who we now know to be the real-life Shirley Ardell Mason. However, the case of Shirley Mason has recently been placed under heavy scrutiny, with experts accusing the psychologists that work with her of fraud and of spawning a pseudoscientific craze of repressed memories. And the concept of repressed memories actually makes number 13 of Scott Lilienfeld's 50 Greatest Myths of Popular Psychology. Uh, the concept of repressed memories dates back to psychoanalysis, where one would bury memories in their unconscious to where they couldn't be accessed through conscious thought. Uh, Sigmund Freud called it motivated forgetting. And often the memories were buried, so to speak, because they were painful and traumatic, and we're protecting our conscious mind from reliving them. And sort of like a Freudian defense mechanism. And while this is an old topic in psychology, it's still contemporary. Most undergraduate psychology students believe there's such thing as repressed memory, and a quarter of psychologists uh, believe that recovering a repressed memory is key to treatment. Uh, after the publication of Sybil, the 1970s, 80s, and 90s saw a lot of legal action around repressed memories. Hypnosis would be used to draw repressed memories from people, and all of a sudden, in adulthood, they would remember an abusive episode from their past, and that would lead to the prosecution of the perpetrator. And now here's the problem, though. Um, over 60 years of research has found little evidence for the existence of repressed memories. Uh, Holmes in 1990 wrote, Warning, the concept of repression has not been validated with experimental research, and its use may be hazardous to the accurate interpretation of clinical behavior. Most research actually shows that people have better, more acute memories of traumatic events. Uh, they're intrusive and hard to get rid of than that they forget them. 
And the argument against repressed memories doesn't necessarily say that we don't forget things and then have our memory jog by a smell or a song or something. Uh, ordinary forgetting or normal memory loss due to time still occurs. But it does call into question completely forgetting traumatic events that occurred. According to skeptics, one day you're not going to wake up at the age of 50 and realize that something really bad happened to you when you were 12 years old. We often know something bad happened, even if we don't remember the full details. These memories just don't come out of the blue or emerge from your deep unconscious. Um, in 2007, Harvard psychiatrist Harrison Pope offered $1,000 to anyone who would offer an example of repressed memory before the year 1800. His argument was that the concept of repressed memories is a social construction, that it didn't become a thing until Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that we talked about earlier. And apparently there was a winner, by the way, and I guess Harrison uh, Pope had to cough up a thousand bucks. So what are we to make of dissociative identity disorder? And I don't know. I'll admit I'm a skeptic myself. Uh, With dissociative identity disorder, we call the different personalities alters. So like Sybil supposedly had 16 alters, and there are some people who claim to have over 4,000 alters. And when I see cases of 4,000 alters, I'm highly skeptical. Um, It doesn't help that many high-profile cases of dissociative identity disorder have later been discredited and shown to be malingering or faking illness. A lot of times this is used, and almost always unsuccessfully, as a legal defense. Anyways, so I'm interested in hearing people's thoughts on dissociative identity disorder. You can send me your thoughts and any mailbag questions or future episode requests to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. That's a wrap on this episode. Until the next episode, take care and stay well.